It's like watching a PE teacher against school kids. It is Friday, which means it's time for the Front Free Q&A podcast. With me, Adam Boltwood, and the man, the myth, the legend himself, Chris Hennich. Ah, lovely to be here. Front two, big man, little man. Aing the cues, I think we say. Before we get into the podcast, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for Hole of the Week. The thing is, there's no reviews this week. There's not been any reviews coming in. So I'm asking you guys to stop what you're doing right now. Click the link in the description of this podcast and review the Front Free. It's the first week of the Front Free being back bigger and better than ever. We've been doing regular podcasts, match reactions, trying to give you guys the best Front Free that we possibly can. So we very much appreciate some reviews. That would be lovely. Uh, Jeff here, for example, on Twitter. Jeff Wall was written in saying, I just wanted to say I was one of the people critical of the direction of the pod, but I appreciate you guys trying so hard for the fans and I will continue to listen to the awesome content. So thank you. Hashtag I am the whole. Jeff, that is very kind of you. And guys, if you want to get your reviews in on iTunes, please do, as I say, stop what you're doing right now. Click the link in the description. We'll still be here. You can come back, put us on pause. It does help the podcast, helps us go up the rankings, all that good stuff. Uh, which we'd appreciate because, as I say, we're trying to bring the podcast back bigger and better than ever. Uh, and it'd be great to hear from you guys and hear your feedback. So, uh, yeah, thanks in advance. Right, I would have to talk about Arsenal, Chris. Uh, last night, they were knocked out of the Europa League semi-final in that second leg. Uh, only a 1-0 win for Atletico Madrid. But um, from watching it, it felt like only one team was ever going to go through. Uh, and it was Diego Simeone's in the end. Not an overly impressive performance from Arsenal, given uh, given what was on the line for Arsene Wenger. You know, they wanted that crown and glory in his final season, but they didn't really come close to uh, to achieving that. No, they didn't. I think I said as much on Twitter afterwards to someone that for me this was a game against a team who can really suck the air out of uh, a match and, and a team that realistically needs an aspirin hiller when they start walking uphill. I think that for me, Atletico, I think, have, have mastered uh, the art of, of a really dogged, narrow performance. And and they did that at, at Arsenal with 10 men. They did it tonight with a 1-0 win. Um, and I think really there was a sense of inevitability about things that, that made it all the more frustrating. You know, they say that, that hate is not worse than love. It's, it's apathy. Um, and that was kind of the, the sense that I took from from this that it, that it was all it was all inevitable, and I think that is the worst feeling you can have. Yeah, you never really felt like Arsenal were were going to score. They sort of had periods of pressure in the second half, but the delivery from wide, especially from Nacho Monreal, was incredibly poor, which meant they couldn't capitalize on those chances that they had in Atletico Madrid's final third. I mean, Meza Özil. He's a player who's been singled out for criticism uh, after the match. Martin Keown, in particular, uh, very critical of the German. Uh, do you think that's fair? I mean, I saw uh, a little bit of contentious conversation online on Twitter. Yourself criticising Mesut Ozil. A couple of people disagreeing with you there. Yeah, it was it was one guy in particular, an, an Arsenal fan who, you know, doesn't think that because he's paid three hundred and fifty grand a week or, the, or essentially the most in the team that he should be singled out. I think, honestly, look, we, we do that with Pogba, we do that with Hazard, 
we we talk about these marquee players and their ability to influence a game. And I don't think Mesut Ozil has done that. You can you can certainly say, well, if he wasn't on this much, you wouldn't say that. Yeah, definitely. I would not hold him to a higher standard than his peers. I certainly think that um, Ramsey was poor. I think Lacazette was poor to a certain extent. He was burdened by the fact that the ball was moving so slow in the midfield that really he was going to have to pull a rabbit out of a hat to try and get any space against Gordin and just that entire Atletico defence. Um, but yeah, I think... That's one of the problems here for Arsenal is that I think Ozil is, is a bit of a milestone for the club. Yeah, he has tremendous technical ability. He can spot passes like few other players can in the world. But there needs to be an alignment of stars for, for that to really work for him. And I think he's not the torchbearer or the leader that they need him to be. And I don't mean leader in the tub-thumping captain's armband way. I mean someone who will actually dictate things in those big games, in those big moments and and. That's what they lack. It's a it's a stick that's often used to beat Meza Ozil with, but as you say, it is asserting himself in these big games. He couldn't do that in this game. He couldn't impose himself uh, upon the fixture. One player he did, though, Diego Costa, I think it's fair to say. Um, somewhat inconsistent in that first half, but in the second half, he was back to his best from what I could see, bullying the Arsenal defence. He looked superbly linked up really well with Antoine Griezmann. And on the stroke of half-time, of course, getting that crucial goal, which meant that I was essentially dead and buried. Um, well, what did you make of his performance? It's been a while since I've seen Diego Costa, but here he looks superb. Yeah, he did. He, he, I said to you before we hit record there that um, it was a bit like watching a PE teacher against a bunch of school kids. He was aggressive, on the right side of aggressive as well, because we know he can be firing. I know he had that clash uh, with Mustafi towards the end, but... You know, that could have gone worse for him if I think, you know, if it had been a different day. Um, I think, yeah, he was able to link up with Griezmann really well. That was the key for me, I think, was, yes, he he created a lot of chances for himself. He bullied the, the back line. He did kind of what you would want that target forward to do, what you think slash hope he will do against Marseille. But I think ultimately... What impressed me most was his ability to bring others into play. And I think that's that's actually something we saw at Chelsea, but I don't know if he always got a ton of credit for it. I think he got credit for the, being the bulldozer, for being the goal scorer, but his ability to bring others in and to help them maximise their ability, that was, was something I didn't always seem to get credit for. And it will be Marseille. They play in the final um, of the Europa League. You'd have to back Atletico going to that one, surely. Yeah, I think, look, they've had, what is it now, five, this is their fifth, uh, European final in, in nine years. So they're sort of old hands at it, you could argue. Um, the Champions League hasn't gone quite as they planned. The Europa League's been a bit better. Um, but I think the talent they've got, the way they kind of... The way they can just grind results out, the way, the way they almost kind of stick a, a spoke in the wheels of, uh, you know, a, a twig between the spokes, rather, of, of opposition teams. That, to me, is is what kind of impresses me most about them when, when it comes to these big games. And I think you look at the way they've stifled Real Madrid. I know Real Madrid emerged victorious on both occasions, but they were a Ramos header um, away from winning first time round. If Griezmann's penalty is a bit better, maybe, you know, assuming things they win that one so it's been very fine margins in the Champions League for them and I think that will will put them as favourites for me against Marseille yeah 32 clean sheets 
this season for Atletico Madrid, uh, the most of any team in Europe's top five leagues, which is sensational. Uh, finally, on Arsenal, uh, Arsene Wenger had spoken about how he wanted to finish his love story of Arsenal well and give it a fitting ending. In many ways, this does feel like a fitting ending um, to his tenure at Arsenal. Another limp defeat is indicative of how far the club have regressed in recent years under Wenger. And again, a signal that change is needed, Chris. Yeah, it, it's certainly not the way they wanted to bar. I think Wenger said something along the lines of this was not how he wanted the love story to end. And I, and I think, yeah, they, they were apathetic. They lacked invention, ideas. And it's such a polarising turnaround to, to what they were under him at the start of his tenure in those first early chapters. And I think, look, Atletico don't do anything that I think is groundbreaking or maybe even that appeasing to the eye. But what they do is they win. And I think that's the difference here is that you look at those two teams who probably haven't spent earth-shattering sums. I know Lacazette and Aubameyang have come in for a decent amount now, but if you look with a bit more sort of longevity and, and context to, to the start of the decade, they haven't really spent earth-shattering sums uh, Arsenal. And yet, they haven't achieved a lot either. The, the FA Cup wins... You know, like it's, yes, it's a trophy, but at the end of the day, it doesn't feel like progress. I think that's the important thing. Whereas I think Atletico under Simeone, they've made progress and, you know, they've also moved into a new stadium. So you, for me, there are a lot of similarities you can draw or parallels in terms of situation, but not in terms of outcome. Let's move on to the questions then. Lots of questions coming in on Twitter. Um, Let's start with Ben Davies. Uh, at Ben Davies, JFT96, uh, tweeting in, is Jurgen Klopp one of the best managers in the world? Uh, obviously, we saw his team progress to the Champions League final last night. Sorry, Wednesday night. I'm going to say that last bit again. On Wednesday night. Uh, is Klopp one of the best managers in the world right now for you, Chris? Um, yeah, I would, I would say so. I think... Yeah, the the thing with him is there's a lot of there's a lot of Jurgen Klopp that um, I think is kind of rooted in the past, and I don't mean that as a criticism. I mean his style it, it sort of lends itself to to England in the eighties. It's aggressive, it's pressing, but it's sort of been given this varnish of of modern intricacy where there's a plan to it. It's not just people chasing after the ball or after the man in possession. It's it's actually organised and and refined and has some detail to it and and at the same time I think look the way he harnesses the past he talks about the things that, that Liverpool have done the special nights at Anfield all of these kind of things so often when we talk about the best we think they're the best because they are reinventing things because they are doing things that are um, new in the way that you know you look at Pep Guardiola we talk about the new things that he has done I don't know if Klopp has done that much new, and I think he's even said that himself, that a lot of his ideas are actually far from his own ideas. They're just modifications of the past. But I do think at the minute, the players he's got, the way he's worked that money, it's yeah, it's been fantastic to watch. And I think it'll only get better next year when, when Naby Keita and whoever else they choose to sign joins up. Another question on Liverpool here from... Packed Mouse. He says, is it fair to say Liverpool have had a better season than United, especially in terms of achievement and entertainment? I think that's a very fair thing to say, is it not? I think, you know, Liverpool could potentially finish outside the top four. I think it's unlikely 
They've obviously uh, they've played a game more than Chelsea, who are now six points behind them. They've obviously playing Chelsea this week coming. Chelsea have made up four points on them in the last handful of games. So I think that's going to be a really interesting game. But in terms of the entertainment, you can't really argue of that. Liverpool far superior to United, I think, this season. Um, apart from the Manchester derby, you'd say, which is obviously a fantastic result uh, for Manchester United. And the achievement, like I say, it depends where they're going to finish in the top four. But at the same time, it looks like they are going to qualify for the Champions League. And to get to the Champions League final is an absolutely staggering achievement. Yeah, it is. I think I know that some people will say they've had a fairly easy run to the final. Um, and I believe actually we had a listener who talked about that relative to Real Madrid that, you know, they'd face Porto and Maribor. And, I mean, Porto were top of the league. They're about to win the Portuguese league. So that's a bit unfair. Spartak came into this as, as Russian champions. So again, that feels a little bit unfair. Yeah, Man City are no slouches in the, in the knockout. Yeah, I think Man, Man City, there's no debate there that Man City are a great team. I think what I like is just how entertaining they've been. Um, you look at Salah for 35 million, you look at Sane for 30 million. I'm, I'm always really careful about the comparisons I draw because I appreciate that it can seem like I'm gaslighting certain um, supporter groups but I think we've seen a lot of waste relative to big clubs and transfers and actually I think Liverpool have been really efficient um, with the signings they've made whether it's Milner on a free things like that even guys like Genie Wijnaldum who I think have been eh, not not earth-shatteringly brilliant since he got there even managed to get out a tune out of him in, in Rome so I think there's certainly a lot of um, stuff to be proud of and that's before we even talk about Oxley Chamberlain who you know again was was very much dividing opinion when he moved to, to Liverpool for 35 million so I think they've done really well for, for what they've tried to achieve and I think they've played the market incredibly well which is, is difficult to do right now uh, Here is a question from Harry NUFC Will Sunderland ever get back to the Premier League if so how long do you think it will take um it's a tough one. One day they they could come back to the Premier League. I think if they do, it's going to take a very long time. They've obviously just been relegated from the Championship. Uh, Chris Coleman leaving the club as well. Uh, although Ellis Short, the owner, has swallowed the debt the club was under. So it feels like, you know, potentially there is scope for a new owner to come in. That there could be good news on the horizon, Chris. Yeah, I hope so for, for their sake. I think that's kind of what is being done now. The, the due diligence by the EFL is being done on uh, Mr. Donald. And I think Sunderland fans are kind of doing the same. There's always going to be optimism when you get rid of an owner who doesn't really want to be there, which is definitely what Ellis Short was. Um, I think what they're trying to work out now as a supporter base is, is what the next 12, 18 months are going to look like. In theory, they should absolutely piss League One, to be honest. It's it's not a sensational league. The quality drops. The, the the financials drop in terms of how much you would expect to pay a top-end player, that kind of thing. You just need to look at, at what Blackburn did this season. They managed to do it fairly comfortably. Wigan the same, coming down from the championship. So it should be totally achievable for them to bounce back up. Where I think things become a little bit more difficult is when you then get into the championship. Because the thing with the championship is it's it's... Such a moving feast in so much as um, the year that Brighton, Huddersfield, Newcastle came up last season, uh, you also had 
Uh, Reading, who'd been down the bottom of the league the previous season. Fulham, who'd been down the bottom of the league the previous season. And obviously Huddersfield, who came up. So the interchange between teams year on year means it's very difficult to, to actually find some consistency and almost um, supplant yourself at the top. Uh, so, yeah, I think... I think that's where I see a little bit of difficulty for them. But I think if, if the planning is right, if it's if it's thorough, I think if it has a bit of a leaning towards the academy, which is starting to produce some good players, then I think they can find success. But more than anything, it, it kind of needs to gut what is left of that squad, really, bar maybe a few of them. And I mean a few of them, like McNair, Gooch, Honeyman, um, and then start to, to sort of rebuild and get the fans on side and inside that stadium. Because promise you, when that place is full, which unfortunately hasn't been very often these last few years, it is an electric place. Uh, here is a question from Mr. Walker Porter. Is defending dead or are attackers simply more potent? Uh, good question. Uh, referring to... Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The well, the trend of very high-scoring blockbuster fixtures, I assume, in the Champions League, etc. In uh, that leg between Liverpool and Roma, I believe it was the highest-scoring Champions League semi-final of all time. Seven-six, it finished on aggregate. Um, is the art of defending dead, Chris? It feels like it's less of a, a focus. For certain coaches, I wouldn't say it's dead. I mean, we spoke about Atletico Madrid there, 32 clean sheets this season, which is absolutely phenomenal. But attackers, it does feel like the game is becoming faster. Attackers are more pacey and trickier to deal with than ever, which leads to mistakes, goals, etc. I'm leaning more towards, you know, it's the, it's the attackers becoming more efficient than the art of defending dying. Yeah, I, I would be inclined to agree with that. I think it's easier to find um, good attackers as well at the same time as, as it is opposed to, to finding really good defenders. Um, I mean, funnily enough, there was actually more goals in the knockout rounds by this time last year than there is this year. So you've actually seen a small drop in goals. Um, but I think overall, the notion that defending is dead is is, is not... I think entirely true. I think what has happened is you've seen a little perfect storm of events. The one that we talked about there with attackers defenders, but also changes to the offside rule have drastically 
influence how a defender can use that and say an offside trap to their advantage. I always remember Ruth Hullett telling stories of, of Milan where the, the back four with guys like Baresi and Maldini and Costa Cora would play against the attack for 60 minutes and they wouldn't concede because they'd hold that line as if it was set with a ruler and constantly just catch people offside. Whereas now, if you're not interfering with the phase of play, you, you can pretty much stand wherever you want within theory, as long as you're not blocking the goalkeeper's line of sight. And that changes the way the defence operates. And and I think it's it's almost instilled just a little bit of anxiety in defenders where they're, they're really petrified to take a risk because one risk is a goal and a goal is you know potentially the difference between success and failure. I think the evolution of fullbacks as well has a huge role to play in this trend you know wingbacks now are essentially attackers you're looking at Man City the champions Carl Walker and the returning Benjamin Mendy for example they're obviously contributing to attack in a big way which creates more goal scoring opportunities etc but also leaves those gaps in defence which in return can lead to more goals to the opposition so it feels like you know there's tactical reasons for why potentially we're seeing the, the this trend of more goals in games etc which leads to this argument of defending's dying but um, it's certainly an interesting question Mr Walker Porter so thank you for that uh, another question here from RPM at Satchan he said Barcelona have lost just one game in the entire season they have a double considering what the perception was about uh, at the start of the season, this is a huge success, but it's still seen as some kind of failure for them. Do you think it's weird? Uh, we did speak about this on Monday's podcast, uh, Barcelona's title win and how perhaps it felt slightly undervalued. If they do go the season unbeaten, perhaps that perception will change. But it does feel like a general trend in a couple of the big leagues in Europe, Chris, you know, Man City, Barcelona, Bayern Munich being so dominant, winning their trophy, their title so early has led to this perception that perhaps it's it's devalued in some way because, oh, it was easy for them. You know, there's not that that appreciation of the consistency. Winning it early is a sign of, of superiority, not a sign of, ah, it was easy for them. You know, we can't value that. Yeah, I think, I think it's an interesting one. That I, f- I feel like I referenced at the time what Brian Clough said about winning league titles, that it takes a bit of everything for managers. And I think it takes a bit of everything for players as well. It takes great bit of determination, consistency most of all, a lot of intangibles really that, that you can't necessarily quantify with statistics and numbers. I think the other thing that, that perhaps strikes me is the fact that for whatever reason, there's a certain allure to the Champions League, the idea that you know you, you, you don't win it as often or you don't always have the chance, you know, you have to get your stars to align for the Champions League to happen. Um, Whereas with the league for a team like Barcelona, every year reset hit and, and they've got a similar chance in theory to the last year. I, I personally, I think there's merit in both achievement. Me personally, I, th- I think, I think in, in a lot of ways it's a different skill set. That's, that's what you have to remember. It's a different skill set because for, for Real Madrid, you kind of have to turn it on just at the flick of a switch and, and ride through the difficult waves. And, and, I think, you know, that that for me, if we assume for a second that Real Madrid are to win the Champions League and Ronaldo is to star, I think that could be their legacy. That Messi couldn't always maybe turn it on in that cup-type moment, in that cup atmosphere. A bit similar to, to what um, he found with Argentina, that tournament sometimes did, did stifle him a little bit, whereas Ronaldo could. But Ronaldo couldn't always be consistent in the league. 
and couldn't stretch it out across those 38 games and turn it on as much as needed, whereas Messi could do that. And I think it's it's just, yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a different race for them both that I think is reflected in their clubs as well. Next question is from Nikhil Dawood. Uh, thoughts on Wilfried Zaha? Is he a diver? Is he ready to make the step up? Is he the most important player to any team in the Premier League? Uh, that is a big question. Uh, first off, is Zaha a diver, Chris? Uh, yes or no? <laughs> um, it feels like a leading question if I'm yeah, honest yeah a little bit um, I think he does go down easily at times I do also think he's fouled a lot um, the, the funny thing with him is I see a lot of this talk about he's the best player outside the top six I have to be totally honest and maybe I should be watching more of him I don't always see that I see a lot of really good runs. I see a lot of danger in, in him when he's got the ball. But I don't know if he um, would translate to a top six side as effortlessly as, as people want to make out. Because I think, and this is where I can be the stat man for a brief second and, and sound a little bit like Nico as well, and say that I would love to see what his possession you should stature and see how often the play ends with him because I think a lot of the ball is run through him at Palace, and I don't know if he'd have that same freedom. A bit like Memphis Depay in that sense, another winger who didn't really thrive at Man United, because he had a high possession usage when he was at PSV. And it, it's difficult to go from being the star attraction to being just one of the band. That, that doesn't always work for players. Sometimes they can't uh, refine their process to the point where they become more efficient with it. Mm, be interesting to see if you know he's long been linked with a move to Spurs, whether that potentially materialises this summer. You're looking at, what, 40, 50 million probably for Zaha that, that Palace would be demanding. So I'm sure Spurs would have to sell players the likes of Alderweireld, Dembele. They've been linked with moves away. Could that potentially fund a move for Zaha? Maybe Sissoko. If we can offload him for 20-odd million, we can use that for Zaha. I think it'd be great to see someone with that that trickery, that pace, just that, that element that could change a game. Whether Lucas Moura is someone that Pochettino feels can fulfil that role next season. And, uh, it'd be interesting to see. He doesn't seem to be able to trust him this campaign so far. But uh, yeah, Wilfried Zahar, a player long like to see at Spurs. Um, so it'd be interesting to see if he can make that step up uh, to, uh, to his top six side. Uh, moving on, we've got another question here from Brandon, who says, who has been the best young DP in MLS this season, I think you can take this one, Chris. Still, it's still right, really early doors. Um, I know people are going to want me to say it's Latin because of what he did in the, uh, the what was it, El Trafico, the LA Derby. That's what they call it. Um, to be but fair, he's, but he's not. Brandon te- has said young DP. He has said specifically young DP, oh, okay. which is probably I don't think Latin fits into that category. So. Yeah. Okay. So, so okay. Then if we're going young DP, I think it's one of two personally. It's either Miguel Almiron of Atlanta United, six goals. Um, granted, a few PKs in there, so, you know, not uh, not, not uh, earth-shattering. Or Jesus Medina of New York City FC, who's just come into the league. Um, I think he's got close to half a dozen assists now and a couple of goals. So he's been fairly handy as well. Um, a young young player who they signed, I think he's Paraguayan, um, 
And so, yeah, one of those two. But it's you know that's one of the great things about MLS. It, it, it's becoming younger year on year, which is is meaning you're getting to see more of these players. On a related note, Matt Tinknell. Uh, writes in DMing, uh, sliding into those DMs at the front frame. Uh, started to follow MLS more this season, but want to find a team to follow support. Any tips? Who? Um, I personally have got a soft spot for Atlanta United, haven't been there last year, haven't been to a game, not at their new stadium, unfortunately, but at the Bobby Dodd Stadium. Um, the atmosphere was fantastic. They seemed like a club who who had everything in place from the infrastructure, from the way it was run, the youth teams, etc. just seemed like a really positive atmosphere around the club. And uh, yeah, I think Atlanta United, you could, you could do worse than them as a, as a pick to support in, in MLS. Anyone you've got a soft spot for, Chris, that you could recommend? Uh, whoever pays me to do digital work, to be fair. Um, oh, yeah. Fair enough. Follow the money. <laughs> no, I think, you know, the funny thing is, it's not terribly dissimilar to picking a team over in England. It, you, you've sort of got to go with what you think aligns to you. So if, for argument's sake, you're a little bit more of like a country type, you know, plaid and stuff like that, then Cascadia, so Seattle, Vancouver, uh, Portland, that's where you want to gravitate. If you're a bit more of a big city kind of, you know, New York Knicks type, then NYCFC is probably your best bet. I think it has to kind of click with you, otherwise I don't think it's going to stay. And that's that's almost the, the trap I've fallen into is that I can't really find a team that really resonates with me. I mean, DC United were the first one I was exposed to properly. Um, and there's, yeah, there's a, a certain uh, allure to them, but uh, I, st- I still haven't really found a team I've properly clicked with. What's your perception of Atlanta? You know what? Nice done, kit and all. Nice bloody kit and all. Nice kit. And to be honest, they've absolutely kicked the door down. Um, they've not looked into the league meekly, which I really admire. From the stadium to the players they've bought, the investment they've put in the team, the facilities, getting a youth team up nice and early. It's There's a lot to be excited about with, with Atlanta United, 100%. Real-life Gaston back on Liverpool. In your individual opinions, if Liverpool win the Champions League this year, could they carry that over and challenge City for the title next season? And Perhaps this may attract a few big names. Um, I think even if they don't win the Champions League, I think they, they could be challenging City next season. I mean, you mentioned it earlier, Chris. Um, the likes of Naby Keita coming in. Uh, Mo Salah, I think there's no real danger of him going to Real Madrid this summer, whether or not Liverpool win the Champions League. I think... Uh, you know, it's obviously been an incredible debut season and I don't see any reason why Salah would feel like he can't fulfil his ambitions at Liverpool and would, would leave this summer. So it feels like, you know, they've got all the ingredients there. Um, perhaps they could add one or two more stars, but they've already got Virgil van Dijk who came in in January for 70-odd million. It feels like they've got a very solid spine to their team now. Karius is one who seems to sort of assert himself as the number one as well. So having him, van Dijk, Cater, Salah... It feels like a very strong core to build this Liverpool team around. So I think, yeah, it'd be interesting to see if they can challenge City in the league next season, whether Klopp can can take them to that level um, because it's going to be more competitive than ever. Manchester United, of course, are going to improve, I imagine. Um, Tottenham as well are going to be up there. Arsenal, I think, could, if they get the, the next appointment right, be a, a club that challenges again. You've got Chelsea as well, who are always revitalised when they bring a new manager in. So it'll be tough. There's going to be a lot of competition. But I think, um, yeah, for Liverpool, whether they win it or not, I certainly think they're going to be up there challenging for, for City and, and, and pushing them close. Uh, next question 
is from oh, that's an interesting one. Simran Janda said, "Should Gerard be given such a prestigious job as the Rangers one? He has zero managerial experience and has only been a coach for a couple of years. I know he has to start somewhere, but a very good question from Simran. Uh, Stephen Gerard, according to reports." He may even be confirmed as, as Rangers manager by the time you're listening to this podcast. Uh, at the time of recording, the reports are all, it could be confirmed within 24 hours. It's an intriguing one, isn't it, Chris? Because obviously Gerard is a huge name who brings awareness, who brings attention and a spotlight to Rangers as a club um, at a time when they're you know, clearly second best to Celtic. But is it the right appointment when, as Simran points out, the, the experience isn't there? Is he really going to be the man to to help Rangers compete with Celtic on a level? I mean, unless he's going to start playing central midfield, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> Get the boots back on. Yeah, I mean, look, I've had a fair few chats with Ross Dunbar, who is um, a good journalist and also a Rangers fan. Uh, and some of the deals Rangers have done have looked OK. I'm not going to start claiming I watch them every week. Um, but, you know, I thought Sean Goss was a decent little player at Man United that they picked up on loan, things like that. But the problem they've got is they're shopping in a totally different market to to Celtic. You look at someone like Olivia Nisham, for example, who I was a big fan of at Man City. Um, he had an, an okay loan spell in Genoa before he went to Celtic. But I really liked him. Very powerful, very technical at the same time. And and for four million, I thought, yeah, he's a he's a bit of a bargain, really. I think he'll do really well, and you'll probably double your money on him at least. I don't think Rangers could afford him, and yet he would be such a huge upgrade to to their midfield options, um, at least in my opinion. And it's things like that where they have to go and sort of shop in these side streets and things like that. They have to get like Alfredo Morelos and Morelos and people like this from from maybe outside of the box type situations. And I, and I just think. It leaves them in, in a position where, again, everything's got to be spot on for them to be a Celtic side who not only can shop for better players, but I would say have a better coach in Brendan Rodgers and have just a better tactical identity. I think Rangers, uh, Celtic excuse me, are so much more assured of, of how they're trying to play and how they're trying to achieve things and what they're trying to do that it means that there's quite a little bit of a, um, a gap forming between the two that means that I couldn't see Rangers beating them anytime soon because in the brief uh, glimpses I've caught of, of the old firm games even I think when there was one where Celtic went down to 10 men and they still managed to beat them so it was yeah the, the gap needs addressing and I'm not sure if if just Gerard does it I think they need some uh, some investment in there as well. Tim Eels says, is Dave no longer on the pod because Liverpool are conquering all of Europe? Yes, the answer is yes. Um question here from Harvey Hinkler who is the best manager outside of the Premier League in England uh, Adam Boltwood yeah I was going to say Neil Warnock myself but uh, yeah I'll take it is there any other uh, legitimate shouts Chris for, for best manager outside the Premier League in England uh, I, I'll be honest my knowledge gets a bit hazy once I hit League 1 down um, I'd heard good things about Shrewsbury's boss but I think in the championship, the managers that impressed me right this season have been Nuno, Espirito Santo. Um, and actually, Sikhlisa Yukanovic has done a, a good job of putting that Fulham side together the way that he has. I think it's going to be mightily frustrating if they don't get promoted one way or the other this season. But some of the football they've put together has been, ah, it's been beautiful to watch. So, 
that is the end of the Q&A podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for sending in your questions as well on Twitter at The Front Free. Do go and follow us there. Check out the new logo, the new branding, all that good stuff. Um, and yeah, as I said at the top of the show, let us know what you think of The Front Free this week. We're, we're back bigger and better than ever. We appreciate reviews, ratings, feedback on iTunes. You can click the link in the description uh, to leave us a review and of course has always been with a chance to be in the whole of the week our favorite review which we'll be announcing once again from next thursday you do win a box of ferrero rocher if you are the whole of the week so uh yeah i mean a very prestigious prize i'm sure you all agree uh until monday though when we'll be back with the weekend review as always a uh, big weekend of football coming up uh chris where can the listeners where can the whole find you until monday at the front three trying to uh, pretend to be everyone else <laughs> good stuff uh, guys doing good everyone's there another plug at the front three on twitter until monday we'll see you then have a bloody good weekend Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.